0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to confirm that as advertised on last week's show, we indeed are going to speak for today's program with Sam Keane author of the national bestseller, the Disappearing Spoon. Sam has a new book out. It's titled The Violinist's Thumb and Other Lost Tales of Love, War, and Genius as written by our genetic code. We had Sam Keen on last year and it was a lot of fun and uh, we promise that today's segment will also be a lot of fun. And who knows, you may even learn something. In fact, we'd be very disappointed if you don't learn something. As the Publishers Weekly noted, as he did in his debut bestseller, The Disappearing Spoon, Sam Keen educates readers about a facet of science with wonderfully witty prose and enthralling anecdotes. Keen's thoughtful, humorous book is a joy to read. And of course, the pressure's on after we booked Sam for this uh, engagement on our program. The good people at Fresh Air brought him on to speak with Terry Gross about the book. And I would hasten to add, although I love Fresh Air and I love Terry Gross... If you're disappointed with the interview with Sam Keen, stay tuned. We're going to see if we can't one-up it, and I'm pretty sure we're going (laughs) to. You know, this might be a time to mention that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But at any rate, let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 26th of July. It was on July 26 in the year 657 that Muawiyah, an early Islamic leader and founder of the great Umayyad dynasty of Caliphs, defeated Ali in the Battle of Sifin in Mesopotamia. He restored unity to the Muslim empire and made Damascus its capital. This also marks, as I understand it, the beginning of the split between the Shia and Sunni factions of Islam. I believe that Ali was the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad, and it is the followers of Shia who still believe that the leadership of the religion must come from someone who is a relative of Muhammad. And by God, we're going to have to have a program that talks about, uh, about that schism in Islam, and probably one about the great schisms that have taken place in Christianity as well. That probably will not be in the next few weeks, however. We're going to have to do quite a bit of boning up for those topics, but I think we're going to do them. It was on July 26th in 1775 that the U.S. postal system was established by the Second Continental Congress, the first American Postmaster General, none other than our own Benjamin Franklin. By some reckoning, the nation of Australia was born on this date, for it was on July 26th in 1788 that British colonists settled Sydney, Australia, which began as a penal colony. Something which, if the Australians are not exactly still ashamed of, well, they're not exactly proud of either. Nevertheless, the great nation of Australia did go on to become one of the first tier among the world's nations. All right, big day for the English language. July 26th in 1869, the Disestablishment Bill was passed by the English Parliament, officially dissolving the Church of Ireland. Organized opposition coined one of the longest words in the English language as a result. Yes, anti-disestablishmentarianism, which although shorter than supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is actually a real word and on this date in 1953 fidel castro began his revolt against the regime of fulgencia batista with an attack on the army barracks in moncada in eastern cuba it was unsuccessful and i believe fidel actually served some time over the incident but uh, eventually he did oust batista that was in 1959 which i do believe makes him the world's longest reigning dictator and I think rain probably is the right word. And even though his brother Raul is supposed to be running the show, eh, it's, it's, it's Fidel. I did at one point uh, see a display dedicated to the attack on the Moncada barracks at uh, at a museum in Havana. A museum which uh, caused one of my Cuban friends to just roll her eyes over. And she made comments like, yeah, if you want to go check out the, in the, the pajamas of the revolutionarios. Because in fact, yes, the Cuban government has thoughtfully provided for your examination, the bloody pajamas in which some of the revolutionaries were shot by Batista's troops. I do have to say, I think this effort to inspire revolutionary zeal in uh, the Cuban citizenry has, has, just, has just gotten a little threadbare with time. And uh, yeah, as you might have guessed, we're not big fans of the Cuban government here on this program. But we do have to point out with, I think, some degree of certainty that the embargo still in place by the American government put in place by President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, does not seem to be driving the Castro brothers away from power. I know, some might say it's a little too early to tell, but I would have to point out that it does not appear to be working. And yes, I do feel sorry for the poor Cuban people who have to suffer between their government and its ham-fisted management and the U.S. efforts to help by embargoing goods going into the island. That's got to be a double whammy. And you know, as I recall, our nincompoop uh, current president made a lot of noise about how he was going to relax that embargo, but (laughs) like most of his promises, he doesn't seem to have done much about that now, has he? All right, our quote of the day comes from biologist E.O. Wilson, who said, the real problem of humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Our quip of the day comes from novelist Catherine Aird, who said, if you can't be a good example, then you'll just have to be a horrible warning. And our quip last joke of the day comes from Nora Ephron, who once said, when your children are teenagers, it's important to have a dog so that someone in the house is happy to see you. Our stat of the day comes from CNN.com, and it is that American colleges and universities had 56,976 undergraduates from China enrolled in the 2010-11 academic year. That was up from just 9,955 three years earlier. For all the criticism of U.S. colleges, they remain the most popular foreign destination for high-achieving students from around the world. I have some questions on this, and when I have some answers, I'll I'll come back to that topic. Bonus statistic from TheAtlantic.com. This is a sad one. Nearly 9 in 10 U.S. counties now have no abortion providers. And yes, while it is sad that this service is still needed, it's probably even sadder that uh, 9 out of 10 counties have no one to provide it. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for liberalism run amok with the news that a Swedish leftist party has proposed barring government employees from urinating, standing up. A proposal submitted by the left party, I guess they have a left party in Sweden, would require all men employed by Sormland County Council to urinate sitting down while using government restrooms, which Councillor Viggo Hansen said he hopes will be converted to unisex facilities. Said Hanson, not only is it healthier for men to urinate sitting down, but they make less of a mess when they do so. Adding, quote, we want to give men the option of going into a clean toilet, unquote. Mr. McMillan? Although it's sad for me to note this, this does recall a rather odd conversation I had a party, at a party a few years ago. Somehow, and, I, and I'm not sure how the conversation got to this particular point, but somehow along the way, I mentioned the fact that when you get up in the middle of the night to take a leak, the best way to do it is just to plop down on the toilet. To which the host of the party looked at me incredulous and said, I have never done other than stand-up to take a pee in my life. To which what, all I could add was, well, I'm glad I don't have to clean your bathroom. <laughs> and I would add, for the record... Mr. McMillan also expressed his outrage at the idea of sitting down to take a whiz. But boys, I'm here to tell you, when you're tired and it's the middle of the night, it's the only way to go. We've done the disclaimer, right? Yes. Okay, good. To continue, it was a bad week. Actually, this one was from last month for St. Mary Parish, Louisiana, after it's new million Convention and Visitors Bureau sank five feet into the ground and cracked like an egg. The building was apparently constructed atop a swamp. And it was an ugly week a few weeks before that for John Edwards with the news that his longtime mistress, Riel Hunter, announced that she and the disgraced former presidential candidate were, quote, no longer a couple, unquote. In her new book, Hunter describes Edwards' late wife, Elizabeth. She, who passed away from cancer in the wake of learning about her husband's infidelities, was, quote, a witch on wheels, unquote, and evidently has been blabbing intimate details of their relationship in interviews. To which we would add, gentlemen, if you do elect to take a, a mistress, you would be well advised to steer clear of wacky new age videographers. But then again, who are we to say? Maybe it was a love that was just too strong. One that was just so passionate that it could not endure. Gosh, I don't know. And by the way, thanks to all of you who alerted us to the following item, which fortunately we were on top of. In fact, I'm just going to quote from the New York Times on this one. Dateline San Jose, Medina Kaderi, 18, who walked over burning coals and suffered blisters during a Tony Robbins seminar, returned to the San Jose Convention Center for the fourth and final day of motivational talks. She called the firewalk a positive experience and blamed herself for her injury. I got scared, she said. With her vans now safely on her feet, she added, I'm glad I felt the pain. Yes, apparently Kaderi was one of nearly two dozen who were injured last Thursday on the first night of Tony Robbins' Unleash the Power Within seminar, which <laughs> included a firewalk as a signature experience. According to the piece, she did not seek medical attention, but many of those hurt reportedly got second or third degree burns, according to the San Jose Fire Department. Commenting on this part of the seminar, Carolyn Graves, described as a real estate agent from Toronto, said, it transformed people's lives in a single night. It's a metaphor for facing your fears and accomplishing your goals. I don't know, we may have to go to Dr. Andy Jones for this one, but I feel fairly certain that walking on hot coals is not actually a metaphor. Apparently, Ms. Graves told the AP that the people who burned their feet were, quote, out of state, unquote, a term the participants said meant not having the proper mental attitude. Apparently, Tony Robbins himself was not available for comment. A member of his staff explained that he rarely gives media interviews ex- except to Piers Morgan Tonight and The Today Show. You know, I, I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not making any of this up. I'm just reading the copy right out of the New York Times as reprinted in the Sacramento Bee. Tony Robbins Research International, Inc., The San Diego-based coaching company, issued a statement that said that, More than 6,000 attendees participated in the traditional firewalk across hot coals. We have been safely providing this experience for more than three decades and always under the supervision of medical personnel. A small number of our participants experienced pain or minor injuries and sought medical attention. Adding, we continue to work with local fire and emergency personnel to ensure this event is always done in the safest way possible. Now, I have to, I have to nitpick a little bit here. When you claim that you've been safely providing experience that occasionally results in second- and third-degree burns to people's feet, well, I think you're just playing a little bit fast and loose with the term safely. The article goes on. Kaderi's sister Safa age 16, said Tony Robbins, quote, worked all night to prepare people before the walk. If some people were injured, she said, quote, it's not his fault. No, that's true. He did not put a gun to their head and force them to walk across hot coals. Jason Dwyer, the San Jose Police Department's public information officer, said the department was not considering charges against the Robbins group. He said, those people were volunteers. There are no criminal implications. And by the way, Radio Parallax is going to firmly take a stand on this particular point and note that if you do think you might succumb to the danger of taking on a mistress who's a wacky New Age videographer, we don't think you want to try and overcome your fears by walking on hot coals. You know, I think we need to do a little addendum to our This Week in History segment and and look at this year in history, the year being 2012. This marks the 200th anniversary of the U.S.'s engagement in the War of 1812. In fact, we found three items related to the War of 1812 from a book titled Stupid American History by Leland Gregory. Item number one, the War of 1812 is remembered, if at all, for one thing, the burning of the White House by those dastardly British. Invading a country is one thing, but to maliciously burn down important and cherished buildings is just mean. But it turns out that's just what we did to the British before they did it to us. The American army attacked York, the capital of Upper Canada, which later became Toronto, on April 27th in the year 1813. They burned dozens of buildings, including the Parliament, all without orders. Because of that malicious attack, the British retaliated with their burning in Washington, D.C. on April 24th, 1814. And contrary to what most people believe, Francis Scott Key didn't write the song, The Star-Spangled Banner, during the War of 1812. He, in fact, wrote a poem called Defense of Fort McHenry, from which the lyrics of the Star-Spangled Banner were taken. The music for our disgrace of a national anthem apparently comes from an old German drinking song. And speaking of Scott Key, some mistakenly believe that he was an avid supporter of the War of 1812 and a known patriot, but in fact, he was neither. Key was on board the British ship HMS Tonat, accompanied by an American prisoner exchange agent, Colonel John Stuart Skinner, to negotiate the freeing of a political prisoner. In fact, Francis Scott Key was against the War of 1812. He condemned it as this abominable war and as a lump of wickedness. And apparently in writing his mother, he said he thought the U.S. was the aggressor in the conflict and deserved defeat. And I think we're going to try and avoid talking about uh, the catastrophe in Aurora, Colorado. Except to note at this time that according to Mother Jones Magazine, which took into account shootings and mass killings, wherein at least four people were killed, there have been 32 such incidents in the past three decades. Does that say something about this nation? Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure it does, but I'm not sure exactly what, so we're going to defer that discussion. And instead... See what our old pal Will Durst has to say about current events.
1: Hey, guys. Will Durst here with a few choice words on the financial questions currently plaguing Mitt Romney like a swarm of dive-bombing bees in a bathroom stall. He says he left Bain Capital to run the Salt Lake City Olympics, even though his company handed the government signed documents showing he was still in charge. The presumptive GOP nominee now finds himself in the uncomfortable position of convincing voters that a person can serve as a firm's president, chairman of the board, chief executive officer, sole stockholder, janitor, cafeteria server, and a plastic hairnet, and still have nothing to do with what's going on. A concept many of you corporate employees immediately understand. It all boils down to whether or not he played an active role after leaving in 1999, and his subsequent retroactive retirement, whatever that means. He says no, and those SEC filings listing him as boss were just corporate publicity, like Donald Trump putting his name on various hotels and fashion models. During the period in question, Romney did sit on the board of a corporation called Lifelike, which coincidentally seems to be his campaign slogan. But we're pretty sure they had nothing to do with his assembly. They make dolls, not puppets. Romney says he is totally within the law, not releasing any more tax records than required. Yeah, well, in certain states, gambling and prostitution are legal, too. But you're running for president. Or is your actual focus simply to avoid the constabulary? The reason it's important is because Romney claims his qualification is his business acumen. And if it's proven that he lied under oath or to the American people, it would go a long way into establishing he truly is duly qualified for national politics. The former governor of Massachusetts also maintains he's only doing what Teresa Hines did back in 2004. So maybe he's subliminally letting us know the post he's really angling for is First Lady. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst.
0: He is, of course, America's foremost political comic, and we're glad to have him. Thank you, Mr. Will Durst. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for a talk about science with science writer Sam Keane. and in particular about his new book, The Violinist's Thumb. Stick around.